Hello, I'm Michael Brodeur, and welcome to Leaders Alliance. We are a global community of kingdom-minded leaders who are passionate about helping you become the world-changing leader that God created you to be. Join the conversation. Well, greetings, everyone. It's so good to be back with you for the Leaders Alliance podcast. And today we have an amazing friend of mine. Uh, his name is Teofilo Hayashi. He is a Japanese-Brazilian leader that is one of the most outstanding leaders I know and have had the privilege of working with. And I'm happy to introduce him to you in a couple minutes. But I also want to let you know a little bit about what we're doing here. Leaders Alliance is a global community of kingdom-minded leaders that are frustrated by a couple of things. You know, one is we realize that in this last season, the church has lost our voice in culture, uh, particularly in the Western world. You know, if you look at, let's say, North America, if you look at at uh, Europe and some of the other places, but even in other places around the world, the church's voice has gone less and less and less over the last 40 years. Why? Why has that happened? Well, we believe that we've found a few keys to that problem and then how to unlock those those locks and release the body of Christ to be much more influential than we have been. I believe one of the issues is that the church has been functioning on the wrong foundation, that we've been actually building our churches to be a consumer organization and not apostolic sending centers. And so because of that, we end up creating this dynamic where people come to church as spectators, as consumers, and we aren't mobilizing them and empowering them and equipping them at the level to be the world changers that Jesus has called them to be. I think the second thing is, is that there's been a separation between the sacred and secular, which we'll talk about today. And really what that comes down to is that the local church has been functioning at a certain kind of closed level. Those who are out in the marketplace have been functioning the best they know how, but the separation between the two is causing a lack of power. I believe we need to bring those two things together in a dynamic way, and that's really what we're doing at Leaders Alliance. We have catalyst groups that are talking to one another and beginning to brainstorm together to create that cross-pollination to really touch the nations. And then ultimately, I feel like the final thing I want to focus on is the fact that we need more of the supernatural presence of God combined with the super practical principles of God to produce the outcome we're longing for. We need to bring those two things together, the supernatural and the super practical, into a dynamic, strategic unity so that we can begin to impact the world in the way that Jesus desires. So that's just a little uh, thumbnail about what we're doing at Leaders Alliance. Uh, we would love for you to join us and become a member, and you can join one of our catalyst groups and be part of the solution that we're trying to bring about. Okay, so let me shift now. I want to bring on my friend Teo Hayashi. And uh, hey, it's good to see you. I'm so glad you're with us today. This is going to be an awesome. Thank you, Michael. So glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. It's such an honor. Well, this is uh, this is such an honor for me as well. You know, um, we've known each other. Gosh, we've worked together probably about nine years. And yep, uh, I it. first met Almost you in Redding, California, and uh, your wife was going to the School of Ministry for one year. You had just recently been married, and you were taking a break from ministry in Brazil, and then you went back. And we've been working together on and off for really those nine years now, uh, really? working with you as you have led the church that you're leading, as you've led Dunamis Ministries. I want you to share all about those different things as we get started. And also, I want you to share your heart about leadership. 
because I believe you're one of the finest leaders I know, one of the most effective leaders I know, and I know you've you've earned the right to speak about these things through a lot of challenges, a lot of growth, and a lot of fruitfulness. So why don't you take it away, share a little bit of your story as we get started, and then we're going to go into some leadership topics. Yes. Sorry, Michael. Just, just um, uh, let me just interrupt real quick here. I'm so sorry. I just okay, had to come in here. It's daddy time. Hey, just give me a, a one second, please. No, totally. Go for it. I'm so sorry about this. Real quick. Oh, no, that's fine. So, uh, Teo's going to deal with some daddy things. Actually, let me just say that Teofilo's on sabbatical right now. He's been going, gosh, a full eight years, nine years back in Brazil. And uh, as a result of that time, um, his, his board and his, uh, his leadership team felt like it was time for him and his wife and their, their three sons now to take a sabbatical. So they've been doing that in Kona uh, at the YWAM base. And, he, and that's part of uh, Teo's story is that the Lord spoke to him at one point to actually go to YWAM. And so he went to Kona and he was involved in Youth with the Mission for about three years. And so that was part of his amazing training dynamic that ultimately has produced the fruit that we're going to be talking about in just a minute. But um, so he's there with his wife, Junia, and their three sons. And uh, but he's also working while he's there with some amazing leaders. He gets to spend time with Lauren Cunningham. He gets to work a bit with uh, with uh, Andy Bird as well, who he's also linked to as a co-leader of what's called the Send. And so Teo is uh is you know on this season of sabbatical, but soon to come back and re-engage. And I'm super excited to see what God's going to do after this period. So I was just telling a little bit about the season you're in, but why don't you take oh, it away? Okay, so sorry about this interruption. Go for it. Okay, should just just go right. We're going to edit yeah. this. Yeah, just share a little bit about your your story. Yeah, we'll edit. So okay. Well, Michael, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, like you said, uh, we we've been. Uh, on this uh, season of a sabbatical, but uh, you know, we, I trace it back to uh, just when I received a, a call of God uh, that I really knew that I was supposed to uh, do something with my life uh, to really expand the kingdom. Um, I was actually going to college in America in a small private school in Pennsylvania and just living, just, you know, my own, th doing my own thing, a little uh, cold in my faith, actually real cold in my faith. And the Lord just supernaturally intervened while I was in a in a club and I had a supernatural encounter with the Lord right there. And uh, he called me out of that lifestyle and just uh, I remember just stepping out of the club and hearing the internal voice of God saying YWAM. I had never heard of YWAM in my life. A uh, couple hours later, I was in front of a computer Googling YWAM. And mind you, I was before the same night in a club totally, you know, away from the Lord. And there I was uh, looking and reading on what it means to be discipled and to go to the nations. And I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to take a step of faith. And that's what I did. And so that set me on a journey where uh, even uh, beginning this discipleship uh, school and, and just this training to go to the nations, uh, I, I began to hear the voice of God. I began to understand what he wanted from me. Um, that's where I tell people I got the vision for Dunamis. It was uh, during these, uh, you know, formative years of, of missionary training with uh, YWAM. And I did not know that it was Dunamis they were speaking to me about, but I would I would write it down on my notebook and uh, 
I still have these notebooks still today. And I, I look back at them sometimes and it's, it just brings so much gratitude and just tears my eyes <laughs> and uh, to see what God has done. And uh, from then on, after the mission, I went on to work in uh, North Carolina with an African-American church. My spiritual father was the senior leader there. And uh, I remember that everything was set for me to continue that route and take over the church and, and uh, continue. I was on my way to becoming a U.S. citizen. Um, I was back in school now uh, working on my MDiv. And things seemed like everything was perfect. And uh, as I was praying, I felt the Holy Spirit ask me, are you going for the kingdom dream or the American dream? And that question really wrecked me. And I said, Lord, if you're asking me this, this and he asked me three times. I said, if you ask me this three times, it's obviously, I mean, I'm not going for the kingdom dream. I want to go for the kingdom dream. And uh, the Lord said, you know, if that's the case, you, uh, I don't want you to become a citizen right now. I want, I don't want you to take over the church. I don't want you to uh, uh, continue going to school right now. I need you to go back to Brazil. You know, my family is originally from Japan and uh, they migrated to Brazil to church plant. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church uh, as a pastor's kid, as a as my grandparents were pastors. I mean, uh, aunts and uncles, pastors. So all my whole life was church. And uh, but now I'm I'm facing the fact that the Lord is saying, go back to Brazil, which in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking they don't need me there. Uh, it's a very well evangelized nation. Uh, there's mega churches everywhere. Uh, there's so many Christians there. And the Lord starts speaking about revival and reformation. I, mean, I knew the concept, but that became something that was birthed in a very real way. Even in this process of struggling and wrestling, do I go back? Do I not go back? And the Lord starts speaking about, you know, it is something for you to have a touch of the spirit inside a church service. But it's something else when that gets out of the church service and makes it into the streets and into the marketplace. So I really I was really impacted with this kind of idea. We may be experiencing a revival or the beginnings of a revival, but will it actually culminate into social transformation? into reformation the things that i would read in the books of church history and so i i, I felt from the lord as you know i need to say yes to this and where do i start well you know one of my heroes in the faith bill bright would say if i if we reach the campuses today we will conquer society tomorrow and so that's what we did we went into the universities in brazil and uh we started going after kids that were there uh you know words of knowledge praying for healing and they get impacted by the supernatural and then they would come back for more and then it was discipleship time and those were the guys in the early days that that kind of would gather around me and then I, I i built a team with these guys till today some of them are in europe uh planning churches some of them are in uh, other countries in, in south america uh, different parts of Brazil. Some of them are in America as well. I mean, they're all over right now, but it all began by being obedient to this word of the Lord and uh, <clears throat> reaching them where they were at. They were in the college campuses. And uh, I, we've seen so many marketplace leaders come out of Dunamis. Uh, they were college students at the time. And uh, a lot of them struggled with the fact that, hey, I am not studying theology. I'm studying engineering. I'm not studying, you know, to become a missionary or the, the quote unquote traditional missionary. I'm, I'm studying to become a lawyer. And uh, when we under we, we went, went in deep with the teaching of, hey, we need a whole gospel for a whole man, for the whole man, for the whole world. And okay. uh, you are to take 
the kingdom of God into the business world, into the educational field or wherever it is that you're called for. And, and people started getting vision. Well, I don't have to quit college to serve the Lord, or I don't have to quit engineering school to go into a theology school. I can just serve, I can serve the Lord. And I, and we need kingdom minded engineers and kingdom minded physicians and kingdom minded nurses and teachers and, and so forth. And, uh, We've seen uh, in the church sphere, and we've also seen in the spheres, the different spheres, just fruit come out of those college ministry years that still continue. So right now we're in 400 university campuses, and uh, Junie and I, my wife, uh, besides Dunham, is we're also pastoring Zion Church, which is also a church planting movement. So that's kind of like a short version of, of our story and, and what we're doing right now. Well, let's dig a little deeper into some of this, because when I first met you, you know, Dunamis was still pretty small. I think I don't remember. It was, it was probably under 100 campuses at the time. But um, but, you know, now it's like 400. But and I was saying, well, Tao, why don't you consider just turning Dunamis into a church planning movement? And you said, no, because I've already connected with pastors and leaders all over our nation and that, that you didn't want to violate that relationship you had because Dunamis was working in partnership with the local churches in those different areas. Talk to me about that a little bit. What has been some of the blessings of that? What have been some of the challenges of working with local churches? How's that partnership worked? Yeah, we began Dunamis, uh, or I began Dunamis in 2008. Uh, I was 27 at the time. And uh, it was a, it, I did not want to do anything with church. I still had a lot of church drama in my childhood. Um, you know, my, pa my parents were pastors. And so I saw, a, uh, you know, I, I had a part of my pain was uh, understanding growing up that my father was something inside the church and out, something outside the church. And uh, that culminated into his double lifestyle coming out in the open. And he left the church, left the, the family. It was just my mom, myself my sister. So I, I still carried a little bit of a trauma from the church. I had gone through inner healing through a lot of counseling, but still I was like, you know what? I want to serve God, but I don't want to do it inside a church. And so, you know, parachurch ministries were kind of like my go-to. And, uh, and I felt the Lord actually was so gracious to me because, you know, I, I found him there. I, I, I was being used by the Lord there. And I felt like there was a blessing for me to do that. But I felt like the Lord knew exactly when to start dealing with these issues inside my heart. And uh, I would say four years into Dunamis, these things started coming up and surfacing. And I had to deal with it. And I started talking, hey, Lord, I believe you were part of the process as well. Mm -hmm. you know. And I started seeing, Lord, I need to have a, a love for the, for the local church. I've, I've, I have a love for your kingdom, for the body of Christ. Uh, I, I thrive working with the parachurch ministries. And, uh, but I also, I need to get this thing healed up. And, uh, and the Lord really touched and shifted my heart to the point where I was, I am today passionate about the local church. So, mm. you know, four years before that, I had committed to a bunch of pastors in Brazil saying, we will never become a church. If you send your kids, your university students, your young adults to our movement, we will disciple them and make sure that they use uh, their university campuses as a mission field, and we will position them as missionaries to the university campuses. And uh, they began, so uh, pockets, which are nothing but like uh, uh, expressions of church inside uh, the university. So uh, these are uh, weekly meetings that they do inside a university campus. And like you said, at the time we were under 100, uh, we started seeing a lot of fruit. It's all student-led. We train the students to lead it. 
Um, and so the local church actually benefits because we're discipling them, we're resourcing them. And some of these people go back to their churches and end up becoming, you know, leaders within the church, mm -hmm. local church. And, and they come with, with a lot of baggage that we've actually invested in them. And that church thrives because of that. And it benefits because of that. Uh, so we awesome. have that relationship. And because a lot of the leaders in the nation of Brazil at the time, uh, do not which are these weekly expressions inside of campuses had not made out made outside the the the, the brazilian territory so at the time uh it was all within brazil uh now we're in different nations but uh the brazilian pastors saw tail actually took over a church and then not transform dunamis into a church so that that gave them a, you know that it gave me kudos and so they they're really like wow he's a man of his word so i i felt like the lord uh after Changing my heart to the local church, and me and my wife and I am facing to lead what today is Zion Church, and still leading Dunamis. So these two things that we're leading, uh, intention at the same time, and it's been an amazing learning and growing experience. I feel that today, uh, anything that has to do with Dunamis, uh, the the church across the nation uh, really supports it. You know, I think I guess so that good. was kind of like the test that made them say, oh, all right, we're going to take these guys seriously. And they are people of their work. And, and the kids that are going there are coming back, you know, more Christ-like and, and they're being activated in their giftings and, and they're moving in, in, in the gifts and in the fruit of the spirit, both things that have That's been so very, uh, you know, emphasized in our movement. That's so good. Now, so then talk a little bit about the transition when you started taking over the church and started becoming a, a local church pastor and how, and how the church has grown since that time. So give us a picture of that. Yeah, It's really interesting. Uh, you, you know, church, uh, you've been involved so, in so many different ways with our church over the last nine years, but um, you know, it was something that I was constantly being reminded by uh, the, the elders or the leaders that were there before myself Hey, this is not a youth movement. You can't lead a church to become a youth movement. And so I was actually stepping into a place where we had families. Uh, we had uh, a lot of people that were older than myself. And I struggled with a lot of the insecurity. Can they? Can these people see me as a leader? Uh, can these men that could you know, be my, my uh, dad's age, could, could, they, could they see me as their pastor? And so um, I, it, it was not easy, I would say that. I would say not because there was a resistance from them. It was a constant battle in my mind. And uh, yeah. that made me really grow and made me really uh, have to grab a hold of what the Lord spoke of me. Uh, I think that a lot of times when we talk about identity as a leader, we're, we're thinking about what other people are trying to say about us. And we don't realize that our biggest struggle is between what God says about us and what we say about ourselves. That's and right. so there's a lot of, there was a lot of struggle. And so I, I found out that there were narratives inside me that I never noticed that were anti-kingdom. Hey, oh, you're not good enough for this. You're too young. Um, uh, you, you didn't go to the, the you, you're not well prepared for this. Uh, you're not that talented. You're there just because you're the son of the founder. Uh, you're there just because you have the right last name. Uh, you, you know, oh, you have no experience in the marketplace. Have no 
lead marketplace leaders. Uh, th those were the things that were going through my mind. All you can do is lead young people. You can't lead family. You don't have kids yet. So I'm, I'm wrestling with these narratives inside my mind. As Junie and I took over church, I was uh, uh, 32. She was uh, 26, no, 25 uh, with no kids. And, and, and so uh, it was something that I had to, you know, take it to the board and just one by one keep knocking down these strongholds in my mind. And wow. uh, the church was actually very open to, to our leadership. Uh, and and uh, I'm grateful for that. But um, when I was able to, in my mind, be able to say, all right, I'm leading families here. This is a multi-generational church. It's a multicultural church. And now I'm going to meet young people here. These are, at the time, millennials and now Gen Zs. You know, they, they are struggling with different things than families are. Or with, uh, you know, even the, I have an older cousin that you know well. He's one year older than me. But he, he began his family way before I did. So his kids were maybe 9, 10 years old when I took over the church. And he came to me and says, hey, you need to invest in kids' ministry. It was not even in my radar. <laughs> he says, we need an amazing children's ministry. And uh, he, he worked in the medical field. And he said, I am willing to even uh, reduce my workload in the medical field to help you with the children's ministry. Now, guess what? Uh, today, he's full time with us in children's ministry and actually going into more of education, uh, even mm. consulting to the government in terms of education. And so uh, we're looking even as Christian education for the future. How does that look like K through 12 and up to university level? How does that look like a biblical worldview education? And he's my go to guy. You know, so the Lord took him from a medical arena to the church sphere and now into the educational arena and and all these spheres uh he is just as spiritual as he is in all three spheres <laughs> and so that's for me to see my cousin walk this journey with me has been an amazing uh example that i tell even uh people in our church that are in education that are in the business realm they're working with the yeah. government hey it does not matter you may not be behind a pulpit, but you are being led by the spirit and you are the salt and light of the world wherever you're at. Uh, check out what my cousin is doing, what Lucas is doing. And, and uh, he's become this example for us, too. So so these were the shifts that I had to make as I took over the church. Uh, you know, uh, things that are very practical, like uh, parking lots. I had, you know, I had not <laughs> understood the power of a parking lot. <laughs> I had no clue about that, you know. I was so, you know, as, as leading young people, I'm thinking, we need to have an amazing video crew. We need to have amazing graphics. You know, yeah. we, we need an awesome band. And they're like, actually, we need a good parking lot. We need a good children's ministry, man. We, we need to invest in the coffee shop. You know, so these are the things that I had to adapt and, and learning how to discern what is my youth movement mode and what is my local church mode. Once yeah. I got those things down, I could switch the cats real easily. And, and I saw the grace of God help me through that. That's so amazing. And obviously, I've gotten to be sort of a have a ringside seat in terms of the different challenges, but also the different breakthroughs that you've had, because the church has grown probably, I'd say, at least tenfold since you've taken it over from three or yeah, four hundred to yeah. now a little over bit over. 5, actually, we began with 400 members and and now we're running around uh, six thousand. Yeah. And what's been some of the biggest challenges you faced during the different growth phases? Like what, what's kind of been both in terms of your personal life, in terms of the team, in terms of the board that you're, you're working with, some amazing leaders that are in the older uh, sort of boomer set, 
but they're amazing people. So talk about some of the stages of growth and, and what kind of challenges were you encountering as you did that? I would say that there was a uh, very clear barrier uh, on the 500 mark. Mm. And so uh, to cross that, so like I said, we took over anywhere between three to 400 members running on a weekend, two services, uh, and they weren't packed services. And so, um, but when we started hitting close to 500 mark, I felt like I was like hitting uh, these, uh, this wall or the ceiling. And yeah. uh, I knew it had to do with my systems. And so uh, we grew from, let's say, 350 to 500 based on just hard work, focus, and let's do things well and just tweak here and there. But passing the 500 mark on to, uh, or maybe even the 600 mark, it was systems. And so mm-hmm. I had to really look at the systems and say, all right, now we're going to have to uh, re-strategize this thing or remodel this thing. And so uh, what what is the system that we have for our small groups? You know, I, and, and for me, it was like yeah, small groups, you know. Uh, no, I really have to get in there. I got to see what's yeah. happening with the small groups. I, I got I to see if our leaders are being well-trained so that they could lead well the small groups. Uh, what about our departments and the volunteers? Uh, well, volunteer, you know, you just give them a pep talk and be like, hey, guys, you want to serve the Lord? You know, just pick up some chairs. It doesn't work like that when we're, lo- we're looking long term. We actually need to have teachings on that. We need to think around what is a life. Uh, how is the Sunday for a volunteer that's working a nine to five job Monday through Friday has a family, has to drive with the whole family over. So I'm thinking, all right, let's develop these systems. Now we're looking at ministries, generational ministries. So I'm thinking, well, the youth group now is bigger. Uh, maybe we need to break, break it, you know, high school, college age, young adults, and then yeah. middle school, and who's who here leading what. And yeah. uh, so all these things were, were systems. And then I would say uh, when we hit the 1,000 mark, 1,000 mark, uh, we had to retweak it all over again. Wow. And so, so I would say we tweaked it in uh, 500 mark. And then retweaked it at a thousand mark, and I would say it's scalable till the five thousand. The one, the tweak that we did um, in uh, the thousand mark took us all the way out to the five thousand. Right now, I feel that we're in one of those moments right now. So you might be getting a phone call from me soon, Michael, because <laughs> <So, laughs> we're gonna have to do something to go go beyond. Now, one of the yeah. things that that the Lord did in this meantime between the thousand and the five thousand or six thousand around what we're running this weekend. Um, I'm thinking that, uh, a lot of it was understanding church planting. Mm. We had never seen ourselves as a church planting movement until yeah. I began seeing some, um, growing pains. And some of the growing pains was I did not have opportunities for quality leaders to lead as much as I felt they needed and as much as they felt they needed. Wow. And I'm thinking, well, I got too many strong leaders in one spot this is not good. Uh, it could get a little toxic and, yeah. uh, and and not because they are bad people, not at all, but just because it's just, uh, you know, logically speaking, it doesn't make sense for you to put, you know, 20 uh, basketball players in one team on the court at the same time. Yeah. It just gets too crowded. There's going to be some elbows flying. Uh, it, it, the, it was not meant to be that way. And so when we look at church and the way that church was meant to be, it's the equipment of the saints. We need to make sure that everybody gets to play, that everybody gets to do kingdom work, that everybody. And so I, we did not have enough playing field. 
And so that yeah. forced us into looking. And I know we we had a bunch of conversations on this and you helped us through a lot of these things. But how does it look like to, to go on to planting churches? And so right now, I would say over the last two years, we began a or right a year before COVID, we began a church planting movement. And uh, we've seen amazing fruit of that. And it's just brought a lot of life. A lot of the yeah. quality leaders that we we are uh, uh, we see come up, they're like, "Wow, there's actually a pipeline that's long enough for me to stay here." So that's been an amazing time. That's so great, and that's something I've really appreciated about your leadership style, is that you know many leaders basically, if you use a family analogy, they know how to raise a son up to maybe adolescence or to t the teenage years, but to raise a son into full adulthood or a daughter takes a certain kind of security, a certain kind mm -hmm. of vision, a certain kind of process. And, yeah. and to see the fact that, that somebody's highest attainment may not be as a secondary leader in your church, but they may need to go off and start their own family yes. to really fulfill their destinies. And, and you've been able to grow into that level, that long view leadership, which I really appreciate. Well, thank you. Yeah, Michael. I mean, a, a lot has been us talking and, and I'm learning a lot uh, from you and from other people. Just kind of like like I tell people, a leader has to be constantly in a learning curve. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I I feel right now it's um, it's, it's one of those can, I can I can lead them uh, to become what I am. But can I lead them to make disciples of who they are? And that is really the the make it or break it thing for me. Uh, as I see this generation, I, I just really see a lot of young people uh, that are talented leaders that they can grow, like you said, to the adolescence. But how yes. can I grow them into adulthood? And adulthood is can they multiply themselves mm. and, uh, and and not necessarily multiply a standard or a format from the family. Because a lot of yeah. times we will compensate the deficiency of in the maturity of adulthood by saying, hey, we want to make you all robots. And yeah, so I'm going to make a robot that will make another robot. And that's not the point, because uh, even spiritual sons, they have their own characteristics and they will you know, be, get spiritual sons with their own characteristics. But it's right. the DNA. It may, it may not look alike. It may not be exactly alike. There might be, you know, certain emphasis that are different. But the DNA mm. that is running in that bloodline, bloodstream, has to be the same. So mm. I, I really, you know, I'm I'm still learning. I'm learning a lot, actually, as I go. And the more that I learn, I see that I don't know much. And so <laughs> I'm I'm hungry to go after these answers. So, so yeah, right. uh, it's been a quite an interesting journey. No, I love that flexibility, even the flexibility of shifting your systems at different stages of growth. I mean, it's so easy to get locked into one thing. And the fact that you're staying nimble as a leader, to me, I think really guarantees a long range future for your effectiveness. Now, I want to go into, I mean, you've launched a number of other things besides Dunamis and the church. You now have these different ministries. You have Big Wave Media. You have uh, Four Winds Publishing Company. You... Uh, Actually, I, Diane and I got to go with you to the uh, Dunamis Farm when it was still not even purchased. It was just a dream. And, exactly. Uh, it was like a, what was it, a, a tea farm or something like that? Yeah, tea farm. Yeah. And uh, so now it's a thriving with three different schools on it. Um, you know, you have a unique ability to move things from vision to reality. And I want you to talk about that a little bit because I think you have some real keys to how to do that for the average leader. Now, again, on this on this podcast, we have leaders in the church or leaders in nonprofits, but we also have marketplace leaders. 
but really this principle is almost identical in any different sphere. It is. How from a vision to reality. Talk about that a little bit and give yeah. us some of your Well, I there. say that, you know, a good vision begins with a, a holy dissatisfaction, really. You know, you, mm -hmm. you something begins bothering you, you know, and, and a lot of things bother us, right? A lot of things yeah. bother me, uh, but there are not many things that uh, escalate in the bothering scale to the point that now it's taken me off. And I mean, I am like, yeah, this is not good at all. I can't take it. You know, and uh, maybe, you know, one of these things could be a social injustice. Uh, it could be a deficiency in the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, something that could tick you off could be just something that's outside its original design. Whatever it is, you know, I, be, I believe that a, a, a good begins with that. And so it's something that starts bothering me. And then that thing starts escalating to the point I'm like, I got to get to prayer. This is not just a normal thing. I'm like, why is this thing really, you know, just kind of like, uh, it's like this aggression in my spirit. Well, what's what's going on? And, and a lot of times I find that it's something that the Lord wants me to do something about. And sometimes this bothering or this taking me off kind of feeling is what's hurting his heart. And uh, mm -hmm. he's giving me a glimpse of his heart and what hurts his heart. We pray this. We pray, Lord, I, I, I want whatever and, you know, brings joy to your heart. I, I want to be able to be, be that person. And I want to fill your heart to the point where whatever hurts your heart hurts my heart. Well, you know, yeah. when you pray that kind of prayer, he answers. And sometimes uh, that's the inception of a vision. And so when that thing is bothering me to the point where I'm like, this is holy dissatisfaction, I will take it to prayer. And I will take it to prayer. And, and like I broke it down once in the past. I'll, I'll, I'll try to do this here. Um, usually what I do is I'll pray in understanding. And I'll pray in English, Portuguese, uh, whatever the language you speak, Spanish. And, and I'll just pray. I'm like, Lord, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I think is happening. Why are you allowing this? Whatever. And then after that, I'll just kind of back out and I'll start praying in the spirit. I'll just start praying in the spirit for maybe a couple days, you know. Um, you know, whenever that thing comes to my mind, I'll just pray in the spirit. And then I'll take take a walk or go for a drive or, uh, I don't know. Just hanging out, you know, I'm I'm living in Hawaii, so I'm suffering for Jesus here. So I'll hang out <laughs> at the beach. <laughs> and, and then suddenly these ideas start coming up as solutions. Like, oh, this could be a solution. This could be a solution. What if we did it this way? We did, And so then I'll pull out my phone, open up a notepad, and just start, you know, brainstorming. The typical uh, brainstorming, I, you know, thing that we do in creative process. So I brainstorm. Now, after I brainstorm, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really looking at this thing and I'm saying, all right, I know the problem. I kind of have an idea of the solution. And now I need to start ask, answering some questions. Three questions that I would answer. What is it that we're looking at here? Is this like a, a national campaign? What is it that we're looking here? Is, is, is this like an event, uh, uh, an event, a, a solution that I can, I can bring solution through events? Is it a conference? Am I looking at a school here? Am I looking at a company here? Am I looking at a startup? Am I looking at a nonprofit? What, what am I looking at? So what? What? That, that's the first question. Second question is why? Why do I want to invest myself here? Why do I want to put so much energy, so much time? Why will I be willing to put even my money in this thing? Why? Right? And I want to make sure that I have a strong why because if I don't have a strong, strong why... I will eventually not have enough um, 
st stamina to keep on this route. And I was, I'm going to have to, or I'm not going to have to, but I will eventually quit in the process. So I don't want to be, I don't want to go into something that will make me a quitter. So I need to have a strong why. Uh, third thing, how. And when I say how, it doesn't mean that you're going to have all the strategies down uh, because uh, you will get more clarity as you go, uh, the, the nuts and bolts. But you can have, you can, you're going to have to have kind of an idea. So so what, the, the why, and the how. And then after I've answered these three questions, I ask myself, who? Who needs to be in my team for me to do this? And uh, when? When? When is the right timing? I, you know, a lot of people think about vision and they say, well, where there is vision, there is provision. And when we say that, which is very true, most of the time we're thinking money. I'm actually thinking people yeah. where there is vision. There is a provision of a good team. That's how I, I usually tend to think, because I know that if I have a good team, money is not an issue. It'll come. So I'm really looking at the who after I've answered the what, the why, the how I'm asking who. And when I know the who, who's going to be around this table, who's going to be my exec team, who's going to be my lead team, who's going to be my senior pastoral team, or whatever it is that you, you got going on, who's going to be my my campaign team. When I know that, then I'm, think, I'm thinking, when? When is the right time? Because uh, mm -hmm. I need to read the times. And, I, I, you know, I love the verse in Chronicles when it talks about the sons of Issachar that discern the times. And, and the, the key thing about discerning times is, if you can discern the Kairos moment, and you know, I, I'm not going to go into this thing, but I, I believe most listeners are, are familiar with the Kairos and Kronos, these two words and what it relates to time. The Kairos is like the window of opportunity. If you discern the Kairos moment, it's like your, your efforts are maximized. You know, you could do the same. You can, you can go for the same endeavor uh, in Kronos. That you did in Kairos, but in Kronos, it'll cost you 10 times the effort, the money, the people, the energy, the okay. time. And so I want to discern where is the Kairos? Because when I discern the Kairos, boom, it, it'll be maximized. And so uh, I usually go through that process. And then once I've done that process, one of the things that I feel is very, very, very key. And this this is, I think, the the most important thing of bringing vision to reality is the communication uh, aspect of it. The communications piece to it is key. Do I have a prophetic storyline? Do I have a storyline? And can I communicate that? Can I vision cast that? Because it, if I vision cast that well, I bring the right people to the table. If mm. I vision cast that well, I'll bring in the money into the project. If I vision cast that well, I bring, I'll bring in the vision to a point where there's quick buy-in on different levels. So I want to know a storyline that I can tell my board that I can tell my investors, that I want to tell, you know, the people in my political party or whoever it is that wants to invest in the school you want to build or, or you know, the, the, your startup company or the people that are going to invest in your church plant, whatever it is, I want to make sure that I have the right storyline. After that, I want to have the, the same storyline that is good for my exec team, my senior exec team. And after that, I want to have the same storyline that will bring in the congregation. And then after that, I want to have the same storyline that will put social media. And then I'm like, that's like the, the spread out part, right? Then I'm blasting it out. I'm blasting it out. Hey, meet me at the stadium for this thing. Now, I've done the rounds of communicating that vision. By the time it hits social media, this thing is really refined. And if we, if, if, I tell you, if a visionary can can vision cast well, uh, he could actually, he could actually gather so much 
even to the detriment of his own good, actually. You know, that's why we have, you know, Ponzi schemes. People know how to vision cast. <laughs> and even if it's something yeah. that's bogus. And so uh, it's very important that we, we, as we carry the gospel, uh, whether it is in the marketplace, whether it's in the church sphere, that we know how to vision cast well and cater it to the public. The way That's that we okay. do it in the church sphere is different than we do it in the marketplace. So we need to be able to cater it to the public. That's so right. Now, let's bring up the send right now, because obviously you, you just hosted a year and a half ago, right at the outset of COVID, you hosted three stadiums full of young people holding up their shoes saying, here am I, God, send me. Um, how did that vision become a reality? Well, <laughs> it, it, it was it was very sovereign of the Lord, to be very honest. You know, it 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 had to do with people say, oh, but, you know, you have your merit. I'm like, I had a merit of saying yes and being at the right place at the right time. That was my merit. But it really it was the Lord's doing. Um, one of the things, though, I would say is that bringing that for, uh, vision from uh, uh, vision to reality was we knew. That, you know, you have to read the times, you have to read the landscape. So that's why I tell uh, some of the young leaders, one of the key things for a leader is to know how to read the landscape. Because as you read the landscape, you will pivot and position yourself for the big wave. You know, like, like I'm here in Hawaii and, and uh, I, you know, I, I would not consider myself a surfer, but occasionally I'll get out there and uh, I know surfers and it has to do with positioning. You may yeah. have the skill, you may have the, the, the stamina, you may have, you know, the physical conditioning. And, and, but if you're not positioned at the right place at the right time, you will not catch that wave. You will not ride it. And That's so right. it, leadership really has to do with you understanding the landscape. Um, there was a landscape pre-COVID. There's another landscape post-COVID. Uh, there, there was a landscape uh, pre-presidential election. There's a, another different land, landscape after this presidential election. And, and I, I would say it, it's, it's going to change for the rest of uh, the U.S. history in terms of election as well. So so there's a different landscape. We're, we're having discussions we never had in church history in, in a long, long time. Yeah. You know, when it comes to, to government and, yeah. and, and, and our role in, in civil society. So so you have to read the landscape. Uh, we're not dealing with millennials now in our youth groups. We're dealing with Gen Z's. And in a few years, we're going to deal with Generation Alpha. So I need to be aware of the landscape. And so I would say as I was aware of the landscape as a team for Dunamis, we saw Brazil is really um, percolating with the spiritual hunger. And um, there's nothing to be pointed towards that's mm -hmm. big enough for this spirit, spiritual <clears throat> hunger. And we knew if we come in with the pitch for missions, this is the thing that Brazilian youth are like, I'll die for it. Because they weren't impressed with church growth. They weren't impressed with uh, just being part of a, a, a cool youth ministry. I mean, there were so many cool youth ministries across the nation. There were so many big churches. And, and they're like, but they're still hungry. Like, yeah. We want more. We want more. And I thought to ourselves, what if we could give them a cause and say, you could lead the Great Commission. You could lead the next missions wave movement. And so uh, that was really, like, I think the key thing. Now, how do we uh write that vision out in a way that's quick that is you know and then comes in to a certain extent you know as a uh 
uh, apostolic leaders that uh, is listening to us. You could be an apostolic leader to the marketplace. You could be an apostolic leader uh, to to the church sphere or to whatever other sphere they call for. But you know there are marketing tools that are so key because at times as church leaders we tend to think that oh, marketing that's not spiritual. I'm telling you, uh, uh, I I got a marketing guy right next to me. You you know who he is, Michael Dennis, and he he would tell me, hey, we need a we need to phrase it like this. We need to engineer the communication like this. I know your heart, and this is not making you water down the theology behind it or what the word of the Lord is. But I can tweak it like this. And at time, it was a little. You know, at first, it was a little weird, and then I'm like, oh, okay, no. When you bring this campaign to me, I'm looking at it. I'm thinking, yeah, it is completely true the word to the word of the Lord. So let's run with it, and yeah. I would see the fruit of that. And so um, I I would say that for us, the marketing slogan was, uh, it is our time Brazil. And uh, that became kind of like that thing that pushed and resonated in the heart of a generation. And mm -hmm. so when we opened up sales for uh, the first stadium event, I mean, I'm not going to say that I expected to go like it went. But I mean, I, I really expected people to, to buy in. But I mean, we sold out the stadium in six hours. <laughs> and so uh, 70 plus thousand people in six hours beating the record for that stadium, Morumbi Stadium, the biggest stadium in Sao Paulo, uh, the biggest uh, city in, in Brazil. Um, and, and the stadium record was Coldplay. And we beat Coldplay uh, selling out that that uh, stadium quicker than Coldplay did. And Amazing. so uh, because I believe there was a vision that was communicatable if that communicate communicatable i guess that's uh, not not even know if it's a word but it was so easy for them to grasp it they saw right. it it's like yeah that's, right. it's our time boom yeah. and that brought urgency to something that was percolating in the in the landscape that's so good wow that's amazing and so you ended up having to secure two more stadiums to accommodate so, what, close so to we 150,000. The, the story behind it was uh Andy, Andy Bird, who who co-leads the send uh, with myself and, and, and the other gentleman, uh, he was out in a Cairo, Egypt, with the founders of YWAM in a, in a meeting. And I called him up. I said, hey, bro, I know you're out in Egypt, but we just sold out the stadium in six hours. I, I <laughs> thought we were probably going to work our, you know, our work our backs off to till six months to maybe have half of the stadium filled. And now it's six hours. And it's all packed out. And he's like, that is incredible. I mean, we were all in shock. And uh, he says, let me take it to uh, Lauren and Darlene. And yeah, they need to hear this. This is an amazing testimony. And so Darlene gets back to me and she and she says, this is the word of the Lord for tale. Let him know. It, and she uh, gives me the passage of uh, the prophet uh, Elisha and, uh, and the widow. And how the widow would bring in the vessels and the oil was being poured in. And wow. uh, that the vessels were stadiums, that as long as we would offer vessel, the Lord would fill it because it was the time for Brazil. And so that gave us faith. And so I told my team, call the other stadium across the city, uh, Allianz Park, and um, ask them, you know, how much is it? And and we signed with them quickly. And uh, that that sold out in, I want to say, four days. And then we we start started praying into this more. And Lord, is there more? And then we went for the one in the capital in Brasilia, uh, the National Stadium. So uh, yeah, and, and, and you and, and I were, were there. Were, with, I don't know which stadium you were in, but yeah. I know you were there. 
I was in Morumbi, but, oh, um, but Morumbi, I yeah. remember though, beforehand though, you and I and, uh, and uh, Lou Engel were all together with Gustavo yes. Paiva. Um, well, while that decision was being made about, do we do we do exactly? This? Lou and yeah. yourself were part of that decision. That was and it really had to do with the prophetic uh, reasoning behind it, that uh, the capital of Brazil has been, I uh, remember even the, the, the phrase that we used in, in that meeting of making that decision, it was uh, a serpent's nest. And mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately, uh, till today, and, and, and to hit on the uh, necessity of a revival that culminates into a reformation, we could have mega churches all we want. Uh, but if we don't see the power of the kingdom convert systems, and mm -hmm. uh, we will not see reformation. And one of the things that needs to happen in so many nations that are experiencing a move of the spirit is uh, uh, justice coming into places where there's corruption. Yes. And uh, if you would ask, where is the nest of corruption in Brazil? I would point it to the capital. Yeah. And uh, we needed to do something there in the spirit realm to, to really break a stronghold or to contribute to breaking the stronghold. And so yeah. that was uh, the reasoning behind it. And there was so much peace and confirmation in the decision that was made that day with our team, yourself, Lou, and I, I believe there were some other leaders. Yeah. And we just heard the Lord and, and we just went for it. That's amazing. Now we need to wrap up in about the next 10 minutes. I want to shift gears and talk like, what do you see coming? And, and part of the conversation I want to have on this level is what do you see as some of the biggest threats to what God wants to accomplish in the next few years? And what do you yeah. see as the greatest possibilities that we can exploit or, you know, or step into and, and take advantage of that God's providing for us? What do you see both on the, the warning signs, but also on the solution signs? As yeah, we well, that's a future? great, great question. I, uh, well, let me just say this, you know, as a uh, Japanese Brazilian that was educated in America, uh, you know, I sometimes I don't feel American. Sometimes I do feel American. Sometimes I don't feel Japanese. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I feel Brazilian. Sometimes I don't feel Brazilian. So, you know, that I think has contributed for me to always go for a global a spectrum. Yes. And uh, even being here in Kona, Hawaii, at the University of the Nations, uh, I've been having the opportunity to sit down with uh, different leaders that are coming from different parts of the world. Uh, what I've learned is that uh, God is moving mightily. We know about the underground church in China. So God is doing amazing things in the underground church in China. Now, um, what I've also come to learn this year is there is an amazing move of God in, in Iran, and it's led by women. And uh, it's discipleship making. Uh, it's it's in these in the houses, and that is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but Afghanistan, Afghanistan actually right now is 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 kind of rising up with the church movement, um, house church movement, and discipleship making movement that really could rival Iran in the close future in China. Wow. And so um, I I remember even you know 20 years ago, literally 20 years ago, it was 2002. We're about to get into the year 2022. I was serving uh, with YWAM in India, in New Delhi, and I got reconnected to uh, my leader that I served under, and who's a Canadian missionary. And uh, I remember even 20 years ago, we would we would see so much happening in in India, in different parts of India, even where there was a lot of persecution from the Hindus. So much happening. So when we look at the church, I want to try to always have a broad uh, uh, spectrum. What is the Lord doing? 
he's doing amazing things in that side of the world where we in the West would think, oh man, they probably are struggling because it's a hard place. Well, let me tell you, there's so much fruit coming out of that place, out of that mm-hmm. region. I'm talking China, I'm talking India, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Iran. I mean, God is doing amazing things. Another thing that I kind of hear is, oh, Europe is so cold. Europe is such a hard place. Well, not not by the reports that I've been getting, the Lord is moving in Europe. And the Lord mm-hmm. is, has a remnant that's growing and, and, and there's a revival fire that's being renewed in Europe. And so, uh, you know, these are things that, as I look at the church, I've always want to try to keep in mind, nations, nations, broad. So with that being said, I would say that uh, COVID hit the whole globe. Uh, It hit the West, it hit the East, uh, the North, the South. Everybody was hit by COVID. That really challenged us on the way we did church. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it would probably strengthen some kind of church models and probably weaken other church models. So I would say right now, when we look at Latin America, when we look at the West, and when the, I mean the West European and North America uh, church, I would say that uh, one of our big, big uh, opportunities is for us to use the pandemic as a window to pivot and pivot mm. into a real discipleship making church and try to distance ourselves from a tractional model. Uh, a tractional model is good. To, to to evangelize and to bring people into the into the gospel but i mean it's not the best when it makes when we're talking about making disciples uh That's and right. reminding ourselves that the the word says go make disciples not converts and so yeah. the discipleship ha- has to be this key thing that we're looking at how are our church actually not how are our churches making disciples that's the thing we mm-hmm. we know we can do amazing services we got LED screens. We got an amazing band, great musicians. We got funny communicators with amazing illustrations, with amazing PowerPoint. We get that coffee on the way out, donuts, whatever. <laughs> Do we make disciples? That's the question. Yeah. You know, that's the question that we're going to have to answer for. So I would say that right now we have the opportunity to pivot more into making disciples. We have the opportunity of looking into how how was I, I'll speak for myself and for other people in my generation. A lot of us we were looking at the service on Sunday as this big thing that we need to work for. And uh, oh, what about the small groups happening in the houses and in different parts of the city? I, I, just give it, give it, you know, get a small groups pastor. He'll figure that out. Hey, let's talk about the Sunday experience. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> uh, I know that that's not going to work. We really need to look into. What is happening in the houses, in the small groups? What is happening in the discipleship circles? Do we really see discipleship happening? Do we see people getting forma- Christian formation? Uh, or is it just like get together, have some food, and just kind of regurgitate whatever we heard on Sunday and then right. give hugs and then get out the door? Because uh, even if it doesn't mean that just because you have small groups that discipleship is happening. So really looking at that, that, that'd be one thing. Another thing that I would say is we need to really pay attention to the kind of gospel that we're preaching. Mm. You know, for, for a long time, we've just been preaching a partial gospel. And I would say primarily in the West. As we have been influenced in the past by big evangelists that have gathered crowds and crowds. I mean, and, and amen to that. Uh, I'm, I'm super grateful for it. But I was even talking to you earlier. The problem is when we get a uh, model of one evangelist 
that's packing out a stadium or packing out a big tent or packing out a field. And we think that we need to do that every Sunday morning. And once you start doing that every Sunday morning, what you don't realize is you're just preaching a partial gospel. Mm. You end up preaching the gospel of salvation at the detriment of preaching the gospel that Jesus preached. So Jesus did not preach the gospel of salvation when he came to, to earth. I mean, you just read Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll figure that out really quick that every time he's publicly speaking about a gospel, he refers it as the gospel of the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So what is the gospel of the kingdom of God? So that is something that we need to really dive into and to really wrestle with. And if we understand that we are to, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, a fuller, a more broad uh, and not narrow gospel, we will start seeing that that will affect the way we do church. And uh, that will lead us into another discussion that I feel like in revival circles or in revival churches or charismatic churches, we haven't had this discussion. And this is very important. It is unanimous that we would say it is God's will that we would bring heaven on earth. I mean, everybody would agree with that. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is awesome. Oh, yeah, so good, they would say. Now, what is heaven on earth for you? What is heaven on earth for me? What is heaven on earth in uh, San Francisco, which I know you pastored and, and, and saw so much happen yeah. in the area of the, of the country, which most Americans will say is probably the hardest place on uh, in, in America, there in Portland and, and some other yeah. uh, 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 cities that are very anti-Christian uh by by their ideologies well heaven on earth in san francisco is very different than heaven on earth in the bible belt right right, right. And, and heaven on earth in miami may mean that you might have to do church in spanish or portuguese <laughs> or portuguese yeah exactly it is different than doing heaven on earth somewhere you know in the midwest and right. heaven on earth in the midwest may be different than heaven on earth in juarez mexico or across the border and it's different than doing heaven on earth in Argentina and different and so forth. So you get the point. And, and yeah. so I'm thinking we need to have these discussions about the gospel. What is it? I mentioned a quote by a theologian that I, has been inspiring me lately, Scott McKnight. He says, the gospel that we preach shapes our communities. That's right. The gospel that we preach shapes our communities. So what kind of gospel are we preaching? Is it a That's narrow so gospel? Is, yeah. it, is, is, it a, is it a monocultural gospel? Because if it is a monocultural gospel, that explains the polarization that we see in, even in church world. Yeah. Uh, the, the inability to see another perspective. It's so much easier to put certain things and say, oh, this is uh, this is the, what Christians need to vote for, need to think. For the, no. And, and I'm thinking, you know, if, if it's a, if we're preaching a broader gospel, it would actually allow me to have certain discussions and wrestle with brothers and, and sisters in Christ that may not see things the way that I see because they were born in different regions or different eras and in different uh, cultures than myself. So I really believe the, the hope of the American church or the Western church or even the uh, I was even talking to about this uh, uh, the other day here at the University of the Nations. You look at America today, today in America, under 18. Under 18, whites are a main minority. Think about that. Yeah. You, you just think about the immigration that has, well, America's always had immigration, but think about the immigration that has happened over the course of the last 40 years, mm. specifically Asians and Latinos. Mm -hmm. And then you think about, let's say, a kid that came in here in 1985, he was five years old, 
today. He's 42, 41 years old. He has teenage kids going into high school. I mean, his kids that are going into high school, they don't look like the American kids that you went to high school as an immigrant child. Yeah. But they're American. They think American. So we are looking at a different America that's rising. And when mm -hmm. we're looking at that, we need to give a gospel that makes makes them, hey, I can I can go into that and be belong to that kind of gospel. So I feel like it's a necessity for us to broaden the gospel that we're preaching. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's looking to what Jesus did. And he's talking about a gospel of the kingdom. So why should we reduce Amen. it to just a gospel of salvation where the peak moment is an altar call? No, it has to be a heaven on earth that we need to discuss out in the marketplace. That is awesome. I mean, in fact, we we absolutely need to have you on for another call because I just feel like we're just scratching the surface of all that the Lord's put in your heart. Um, it really brings us full circle to this idea of revival and reformation. You know, the gospel of salvation focuses more on the revival dynamics. The gospel of reformation is the kingdom of heaven. Exactly. That we are called to be priests and kings transforming this world into the purposes of Jesus. So that's right. Yeah. Thank you so awesome. much. Can you just say a short word of prayer for us as we close up? Oh, I would and, love uh, to. Go for well, it. Well, first off, Michael, I, I so believe in this thing that uh, you guys are leading. I, I get to, to be part somehow with the uh, Leaders Alliance myself, but it's such an honor for me. And so thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that this would encourage somebody out there and some leader out there. Oh, so let's man. pray. Yeah. So Lord, yes. I just thank you for Michael, for the whole Leaders Alliance team. Um, even as this podcast goes out and people are listening to the audio on this or even the video of this, I would pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just touch our hearts. I know there's people that are carrying visions, and I pray that you would just give grace for us to execute this vision. Would you provide the right people? Would you provide the finances? Would you provide the, the right understanding? I just pray right now, even as we're looking to the future, we know that the church is yours. We know that you build the church. And so, Father, we get to be part of the church as we expand the kingdom. Father God, that I just want to pray for people that are expanding kingdom outside the church sphere, in the marketplace, that you would continue to uh, to to capacitate them to to be your kingdom ambassadors to the business world, to educational world, to uh, government world. Father God, even for the for the people that are at home raising kids, raising family, such a noble thing. I pray that uh, they would be those ambassadors to bring kingdom inside their homes. I pray, Father God, even for our artists, our creatives, that you, that we would not have just simply an expression of arts of a, a Christian version of what the world does, but that we would move in excellence to the point where we would affect and yeah. lead the secular arts industry. I pray, Father God, for that excellence and for that creativity. And we, we just ask, Holy Spirit, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, God bless you and God bless everyone who's listening. And uh, we'll see you in our future podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. Much love to all of you.